This is The Extraordinary Story, a podcast about the life of Christ. Jesus Christ, God himself, entered the confusing maze that is our world to show us who we are and to give us his cross as a ladder up and out. This is his story and ours, The Extraordinary Story. Brought to you by Ex Corde at Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. Written and hosted by Tom Hoops. So I'm always fascinated by the first line in the Catechism, which says, God, infinitely perfect and blessed in himself, in a plan of sheer goodness, freely created man to make him share in his own blessed life. End quote. So that is the Catechism saying that our whole point, the whole point of our existence is to share in God's life. Bishop Barron has been talking about this a lot. He quotes Hansers von Balthasar and talks about the ego drama versus the theo drama. The ego drama is me looking at my own life and living my own life and creating my own style as Nietzsche would have it, creating the me who I want to be, which puts a really big burden on each of us to create our own meaning. The theodrama finds meaning in what God has planned for our lives. This can look like it's smaller than the ego drama because we're just a bit player in this grand design that God has. But it's actually the opposite. Actually, by doing, by forging our own style and our own identity, Bishop Barron says, bore me to death with that. You're going to end up with just a little story in a tiny life, getting this or that accomplished, not nearly as much as you hoped, maybe surprising yourself occasionally, but ultimately boring yourself to death. On the other hand, in the theodrama, all of the things that you do in life take on this magnificence and this greatness that's far, far greater than the size of your small individual life. What you do echoes in eternity and who you touch matters for eternity. Well, that's kind of what I tried to get across in the story of St. Joseph. That's what I want to get across in the story of the visitation. Because the real kind of irony of this, and I think this takes even what Bishop Barron says a step further, is that even God didn't tell his own story by only pointing at himself. He told his story by pointing at each of us. So we're literally telling God's story in the world. We talked about how with St. Joseph, he suffered for his wife and how that was sort of the prototype of how Jesus would later suffer for each of us. Well, Mary is the prototype of Jesus, whose motto was, I came not to be served, but to serve. Mary is the first one to show that style of living. Last time when we talked about Mary in the Annunciation, she had just been visited by the angel who said, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. He will be called Great, the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. In his kingdom, there will be no end. So she learned things about God's identity that nobody else knew at that time, the Holy Trinity. And she knew things about God's plan. She learned things about God's plan that nobody had learned by that time. Because The angel said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. 
But the very next thing Gabriel said was, And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who is called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. So it's only actually, if you look at the story, when Mary hears that Elizabeth has conceived, that Mary believes that she will conceive. And that's when she gives her great fiat, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be done unto me according to your word. And then we hear the ominous next words of the Gospel of Luke. And then the angel departed from her. So Mary wasn't given a special guard of angels to watch over this newly conceived life in her womb. She wasn't spirited away to a castle where the new baby Jesus could be safe. She was left alone, a pregnant girl in the ancient world, having to deal with life herself, with all the drama, all the questions, all the confusion of life by herself. She was stuck back in the maze where we frankly don't know what's going on, or we know it only darkly and confusedly. And what does she do? Well, it says, in those days, Mary arose and went in haste into the hill country to a town of Judah. So the very first thing she did when she was left alone by the angel, alone and pregnant, was herself leave her home and go to rush to Elizabeth's side to try to help her. You may know somebody like that in your life. This is my wife, right? When she hears that somebody is in trouble, she immediately starts thinking of ways to help them. And I awkwardly, when I hear somebody's in trouble, the last thing that occurs to me is that I should do something to help them. But Mary's that kind of person. And we'll talk about the implications of that for each of us in a minute. But the timing is important here. So it's interesting to think about how this story played out. Because if you picture Mary getting up from her prayer spot, wherever she encountered the angel, grabbing her bag and taking off for the hill country of Judah, Well, that's wrong. That's impossible. That's not how travel worked in the ancient world. She was about 116 miles away from Judah, which means about 40 hours of walking. And of course, you know, you wouldn't walk 40 hours straight. You know, you'd walk during daylight hours because there were robbers out on the road. You would uh, have to sleep. You'd have to take breaks. Uh, And most likely, given the reality of ancient travel, you would have to join a caravan that was going to Judah because uh, there's safety in numbers. Well, from the very beginning, Christians have automatically and always assumed that Joseph helped her do this, and he accompanied her on this journey, uh, which especially in that time was not a journey that a young woman would make alone. So whatever arrangements she had to make, whatever materials she had to get together, she did all of that and went in haste. So at minimum, we're talking a day of preparation and four days of travel. That's a minimum. It could easily have taken 10 days or even more. Uh, Maybe it took about a week, seven days. At any rate, if you go by the traditional March 25th Annunciation date, um, that would have her arriving in the hill country of Judah, most likely the town of Hebron, most scholars say, uh, around March 30th or April 5th, right? Sometime between March 30th and April 5th. And then she stayed for three months, we're told. So, you know, Elizabeth was in the six months of her pregnancy. So clearly when you're helping your older pregnant cousin, you're going to stay until the baby's born and, and help her out uh, a little bit after that as well. So it's always been fascinating for me to think about the stage in Jesus's life that all this took place. Because Mary was with Elizabeth 
throughout Mary's first trimester of her own pregnancy. So that's the first three months of a pregnancy. And around day 20, April 14th of a pregnancy, the heart begins to beat. The fetal heart begins to beat. So that's the first activity of the sacred heart happens around April 14th at Elizabeth's house. Around May 20th, uh, all of the body systems are present, including little fingers and little toes on the baby Jesus in utero. By the day Mary arrived, which would be about March 30th up to April 5th, or any point in between, none of that would have happened yet. So what was Jesus like at that point? Well, he's at the earliest embryonic stage of human life. So science tells us that, yes, it is a human being. We know that already. It has a human set of DNA, which uh, determines that it will be a boy or a girl. He will be a boy or she will be a girl uh, with a natural life expectancy and other traits already built in. So in early April, before the Sacred Heart began to beat, before the hands of Christ, which would break bread, had formed, before the feet that would walk on water had toes, Mary arrived at Elizabeth's house. And Luke's gospel tells us, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. So that's an odd thing. Mary brought the unborn Jesus to Elizabeth's house, but the gospel says that it was Mary's greeting that caused Elizabeth's baby to leap in the womb. So let's look at the baby in Elizabeth's womb, shall we? It's John the Baptist, and we're going to talk about John the Baptist later in the podcast. What I'll do is I'll go over the infancy narrative about him at the time that I talk about uh, his announcement of Jesus's life. Um, but at this point, he was six months in utero. Uh, now, when you're six months in utero, you have legs, you have hands, He's even starting to have fingerprints and toe prints at this point. Uh, his eyelids are beginning to part and open up, uh, which, you know, the opening of the eyes is always a significant thing in the gospel. And his eyes are opening as uh, he hears Mary's voice. So mothers will tell you that they feel their baby when it has the hiccups at this stage in life. They also tell you that the, they hear the baby respond to voices. Often it's their own voice. Like if you're quiet all day and then you, your husband or somebody else comes to visit and you speak, the baby hears your voice and, and uh, starts to get excited. Uh, well, what would cause the unborn John the Baptist to respond to Mary's voice? Well, Elizabeth gives one interpretation. Gospel of Luke says, And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is you, the fruit of your womb that Elizabeth exclaimed with a loud cry is kind of strange if you think about it. She literally shouted what she said. Blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that what was spoken to her would be fulfilled. So first, Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Being filled with the Holy Spirit is what happens when you're given the gift of prophecy. You are able to see outside the maze of time and space that we live in. And this happens because you see a truth about what's happening right in front of you, or you see a truth perhaps about what would happen in the future, not necessarily, or you see a truth about what happened in the past. 
that you wouldn't see otherwise. In other words, you establish this connection to the Holy Spirit who lives up and outside the maze. But Elizabeth's prophecy is a prophecy about Mary and about Jesus. She calls Mary the mother of my Lord. Now that my Lord is exactly the phraseology that's used in the Old Testament for God. They refuse to pronounce the name of God, but they would say the Lord or my Lord. Uh, well, that she uses that very phrase. It's also the phrase that is used to refer to the, the king or my king. So it's not necessarily a declaration of divinity, but it's pretty darn close. St. Gregory the Great, said Elizabeth, quote, was touched with the spirit of prophecy at once both as to the past, present, and future. She knew that Mary had believed the promises of the angel. She perceived when she gave her the name of mother that Mary was carrying in her womb the redeemer of mankind. And when she foretold that all things would be accomplished, she also saw what was to follow in the future, end quote. These are the kind of things that will take the apostles later years of traveling with Jesus to understand. And yet Elizabeth seems to grasp them right away with a woman's intuition, guided by the Holy Spirit. She takes it all in in a glance. The fathers of the church also say that this is the moment at which the young John the Baptist was given the spirit of prophecy and his own relationship with the Holy Spirit. We'll see later how John the Baptist doesn't seem to know Jesus when he announces him. Yet, we see here he already met him. And we also see here that it would have been difficult for him to know his cousin because it's, you know, it's 10 days travel through rough terrain. So Elizabeth declared, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. This is a prophecy about how we would all understand Mary, even in our time, how we would see her as the woman clothed with the sun, as the Madonna with the babe in her arms, as this person for whom all these churches are named. It seems that simply seeing Mary was enough to know that she was special. We see evidence of that later in the Gospel of Luke, where a woman cries out from the crowd, Blessed is the womb that bore you, and blessed are the breasts that nursed you. And Jesus rebukes her, answers back, Rather, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. So the whole passage about the woman who is mistaken about Mary refers back to exactly this part of Luke's gospel. Luke has the woman in the crowd saying a subtly different but significantly different version of what Elizabeth said. Elizabeth said, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Not blessed is the womb that bore you and blessed are the breasts that nursed you. And Jesus corrects the mistaken woman with Elizabeth's words. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. That's very high praise in the New Testament. That's exactly the praise that is given later in the New Testament in the book of Hebrews to Abraham, uh, where it says, quotes, By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promise was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead, end quote. Abraham, even though he had been promised that his descendants would number as the stars and waited years to have a child, was willing to sacrifice his only son because he believed that even if it took a miracle, God would fulfill his promise. 
Well, here Mary believes that even if it took a miracle, even if she remained a virgin, God would fulfill his promise, promise to conceive in her womb and bear a son who would be called the Son of the Most High. Mary's faith in the new covenant was like Abraham's faith in the old covenant. Now, this whole business about covenants always tended to bore me when I was a new Catholic. I never quite understood why it was such a big deal that all of these things happening in the New Testament had to fulfill things that happened in the Old Testament. I've lately come to understand that a whole lot better, especially by listening to Bishop Barron and others describe the, the Old Covenant and the connection between the two. Because essentially it ties back to that story, the meta story, the story that's over our own stories of God on this rescue mission to save mankind, how he didn't leave us stranded for centuries. Instead, he's outside of time and entering time whenever he can to try to pull us to understand what he's doing and who he is. And the way he did that is through Abraham. The way he did it was also later through David and this covenant that David would have a child who would rule forever. He also did it through the Ark of the Covenant. So the Ark of the Covenant was this shiny golden box that was created to hold three things. It had the, um, the tablets of the law, so the Ten Commandments. It had some of the manna that had been collected uh, when God fed the Israelites in the desert uh, with bread from heaven. And it had the staff of Aaron. This is that staff that if you've seen the movie, The Ten Commandments, turns into a snake and he picks it up and it turns back into a stick. So the Ark of the Covenant was sort of the the place where God dwelled with his people. Brant Petrie has a great list of the ways in which the Ark of the Covenant from the Old Testament matches up with this Ark of the Covenant that we already spoke about that John sees in the sky in the book of Revelation. So just as the glory of the Lord overshadowed Mary when she conceives of Jesus Christ, the glory of the Lord overshadows the Ark of the Covenant. Just as Mary arose and went in haste to the hill country of Judah, there's a passage in 2 Samuel about how David rose and went to Judah, bringing the ark of God. David says he was unworthy of receiving the ark and says, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? Elizabeth says the same thing. She says, how is it that the mother of my Lord should come to me? David shouted and leaped before the ark with joy. And of course, Elizabeth shouted, and John leaped before the new Ark of the Covenant, Mary, with joy. The Ark stayed in the hill country in the house of Obed-Edom for three months. And if you look at it, the story in 2 Samuel, there's babies happening all over the place when the Ark is in that house. The, the maids are having babies, the animals are having babies, the family's having babies. Well, that's exactly the same length of time that Mary stayed with Elizabeth, and of course, Elizabeth gave birth to John the Baptist. So that language that Luke uses to describe Mary is identical to the Ark of the Covenant language that would have been very familiar to the audiences of that time. It's as if he told us that Mary wore ruby slippers and walked down a yellow brick road. We would immediately understand what he was talking about. And Christians from the very beginning saw saw the importance of this. St. Athanasius, who lived from the year 328 to 373, said, O noble virgin, truly you are greater than any other greatness. 
For who is your equal in greatness, O dwelling place of God the Word? He said, O covenant, clothed with purity instead of gold, you are the ark in which is found the golden vessel containing the true manna, that is, the flesh in which divinity resides. So St. Athanasius saw that this new Ark of the Covenant, instead of holding the tablets of the law, held the new lawgiver, Jesus Christ. Instead of holding the manna that came down from heaven, it holds the new bread from heaven, Jesus Christ. Instead of holding the staff of the priesthood of Aaron, it holds the new high priest, Jesus Christ, who will sacrifice once for all for man. Now, I'm also struck when I was looking through this reading at these eight verses in a row that seem to just hammer home over and over again the message, Mary is great, Mary is special, Mary is exceptional. Um, so I'm just going to go through these really quick. Luke 1.41 says that Mary's greeting filled Elizabeth with the Holy Spirit, which is quite a statement for somebody's greeting to fill somebody else with the Holy Spirit. Luke 1.42 tells us that Elizabeth shouted out the prophecy that Mary is blessed among women. And Luke 1.43 tells us that Elizabeth identified Mary as the mother of my Lord, and that Elizabeth said she feels unworthy that Mary should visit her. In Luke 1.44, we hear that Mary's voice caused John the Baptist to leap in the womb. In Luke 1.45, Mary is praised like Abraham as she who believed that what she heard would be fulfilled. In Luke 1.46, the Gospel of Luke shares words that Mary says, and we'll talk about that in a second, but she says, my soul doth magnify the Lord. My soul magnifies the Lord, which is quite a sentiment. In Luke 1.47, she says that her greatness doesn't come from her, but from Jesus. And in Luke 1.48, she says, behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed, which indeed we all have. And all of this is done in the context of this Ark of the Covenant-like passage that for early Christians especially would have gathered all the associations of John and the woman clothed with the sun and with stars around her head. So nearly all Christians in all places and all times have seen Mary's special greatness, Orthodox Christians, Catholics, Marianites, on and on, Chaldeans. And it's like hammer blow after hammer blow to the idea that Mary was just an unexceptional sinner woman. But it also can't be denied that Jesus took great pains to show that we should not worship Mary and that she was not great in and of herself. Her womb was not in and of itself blessed. She was only blessed because of her connection to Jesus. Later on, we'll see the moment when Mary comes to Jesus on the road and Jesus is told that his mother is outside waiting for him. And he asks, who is my mother? And indicating his followers in the room, says, whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother, my sister, and my mother. That means that Mary is not only his mother. That means that more than Mary is his mother. Just as Elizabeth prophetically praised Mary as you who believed what was spoken to you by the Lord will be fulfilled, we have to believe that we too can be his mother. Whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. So Ambrose, who is also uh, another fourth century Christian, said exactly that this would happen. He said, quotes, a soul that believes has both conceived and bears the word of God and declares his works. Let the soul of Mary be in each of you so that it magnifies the Lord. 
Let the Spirit of Mary be in each of you, so that it rejoices in God. She is the one mother of Christ according to the flesh, yet Christ is the fruit of all according to the faith. End quote. So her theodrama is our theodrama. Her connection to God, her greater story, is our connection to God and our greater story. We literally live in a place where there is despair, where there's loneliness, where there's loss of faith, where the church is in a crisis and the world is in a crisis and the economy is in a crisis and everybody seems to be in a crisis. And we can do a lot of hand-wringing and wondering whose fault is this and who can we blame and how can we fix it or who's supposed to fix it? Well, that's when we can turn to the Blessed Mother and answer it the way she did. And every single one of us is supposed to fix it. So when the Blessed Virgin Mary became the first Christian in history, all of this stuff we talk about, we talk about the vertical dimension of faith being our worship and belief in God and the horizontal dimension of our faith being our service to others. Well, that didn't exist for her. As soon as she encountered the vertical dimension of her faith, of seeing an angel from outside the maze tell her what life is really about, she immediately ran horizontally to help her um, cousin, to serve her cousin. This is exactly what we're supposed to do. Notice what she didn't do. She didn't say, well, Elizabeth lives in the mountains. I live far away. I can't be expected to go all the way over there or... That's clearly the problem of somebody who lives closer to Elizabeth to deal with, not my problem. She didn't say, I've been given a greater task than that. I can't really waste my time on a 10 days of travel or, or even put the life of this future Messiah at risk by going down these dangerous roads. I really need to be careful of myself and look after me. Uh, she didn't decide to simply pray for Elizabeth. She didn't decide to do a novena or to pray a rosary. She didn't decide to send Elizabeth a letter to cheer her up. No, she went in haste to, with her flesh and blood to serve the flesh and blood of Elizabeth and her real needs. Her son would later do exactly the same thing. And he would say, I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you visited me. As you did it to the least of my brethren, you did it to me. Imagine how the culture would change if each of us did exactly what Mary did. If each of us followed this way of serving the other immediately upon hearing of their need. If each of us visited one lonely person in our neighborhood, one fallen away Catholic, one person who's sick and in the hospital, one person who's in prison, one of any of these categories, and talking to them and praying with them and helping them understand the hope that's available to them. Well, the crisis in our faith would be over overnight. The crisis in the culture would be over overnight if we were visiting people in our own neighborhoods instead of letting them suffer alone. If we each loved the way Mary loved, and if we each combined the vertical and horizontal dimensions of our faith the way Mary did, our culture would be transformed and the crisis of faith would be over. So Mary wasn't special in that, in the sense that we all have the vocation to serve and love the way she did. But, 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 let's not forget, 
She was indeed very special. And in fact, what happens next in the Gospel of Luke and the story of the visitation shows how special she was. And it's again, it's, this is Luke who, more than any other gospel writer, focuses on women. You'll see this again and again throughout the Gospels where he'll put the spotlight on the women who are involved in a scene. Well, Elizabeth early on has just prophesied with more accuracy and more succinctly than any prophet we've ever heard of what exactly God's life and God's entrance into the maze is going to be like. Well, now Mary says a prophecy the likes of which would get a guy killed if he said it in the wrong place in the wrong time. But guys weren't willing to say this, and they, they had to kind of learn this the hard way through years of traveling with Jesus before they understood it. But she gives this Magnificat prayer, which is really astonishing in that it is a complete repudiation of the pagan values of her time. So Aristotle, who was the great sort of high point of uh the articulation of virtue. And he really is good. I mean, it's worth reading the Nicomachean ethics over and over again, and the Eudemian ethics too, uh, although I haven't read those. I've read the Nicomachean ones. Um, but anyway, he understands virtue very well, but he refuses to see humility as a virtue, and he refuses to see slaves as people who are worth any dignity at all, right? So this high point of virtue is actually problematic. And the Romans' virtue... Uh, was also a high, noble form of virtue in many respects. Their pietas is much to be admired. But they valued, above all, sort of winning order with violence and keeping order with violence and setting laws according to what the rich want, according to the, the aristocracy, the oligarchy. The Romans valued order when and kept by violence and the law set and kept by the rich. But Mary said, God quotes, has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from henceforth, all generations will call me blessed. She says, God has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. She said, he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent empty away. This is a complete upturning of all the values of her time, of all the social order of her time, of all the ways that people thought of God at her time in her time. Uh, and it's a remarkable hymn to the true dignity of every human person, even the smallest, even the poorest, even the humblest, such that it treats the, the rich just as so much chaff that needs to be driven away from the real valuable people, which are the poor and the humble. This exactly is what Jesus will come to teach later. And it's exactly what we need to learn from this theodrama when we look away from our ego drama. We're not fully ourselves when we draw attention to our own lives and our own uniqueness and our own greatness and our own riches and our own style. We're fully ourselves when we spend our lives devoted to others. Psychology actually teaches that we're happiest when we're serving others and most sad, most depressed, most disordered, most anxious when we focus on ourselves. That's because we're made in the image and likeness of God, and we're most like God when we're focusing on others, because that's what God does. He pours out his love on others. That's why the life of Robin Hood, if you think about it, is more interesting than the life of the Sheriff of Nottingham. Robin Hood, who steals from the 
rich to give to the poor, the sheriff of Nottingham who takes from the poor to enrich the rich. Robin Hood is just more interesting and more fun to talk about, and, and his life is more interesting to look into. That's why Gandalf is more interesting than Saruman, why Cinderella is more interesting than the stepmother, why Dorothy is more interesting than the Wizard of Oz. None of their stories is about them, and none of our stories are ultimately about us. And Joseph and Mary's stories are not about them. They were about Christ, and they were about us, what Christians should do. So Mary's decision to treat herself as a background character, a handmaid of the Lord, in the story of Christ's life is what makes her great. And the way we will be great is by being a background character in the life of Jesus Christ's continuing extraordinary story. The Extraordinary Story is written by Tom Hoops and produced by Ex Corde at Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. Our mission is to produce media that will transform culture in America through Benedictine's mission of community, faith, and scholarship. Visit us at excorde.org.